Um, we got New Year's coming up, not just the end of a year, but the end of a decade. And I was thinking this morning about that, and I recall a place in the book of Nehemiah where the children of Israel had returned from Babylon uh, as a result of King Cyrus's decree and had gathered together to rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. And we're told in Nehemiah chapter 8 that on the first day of the seventh month, which is the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus fulfills at the rapture. It's also the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah. On the the New Year, the people gathered in the street outside the water gate in Jerusalem, and it says that Ezra stood behind a pulpit of wood, just like we have today, and that he was over the people, and there were some guys up there with him, and that everybody with their families, wives, and children stood in the street, And he opened up the book of the law and read from the book of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And it says that he read from the book of the law and gave the sense to the people. He preached. So that was probably a pretty long sermon. They spent their New Year's Day standing while the word of God was read. And it says that the preacher read it and gave the sense. Verse by verse. Of course, there weren't any verses back then. Those were added much later, but he gave the sense. He exegeted the word or the law of God. And that's what we've been doing here in the book of Revelation. And from time to time, we stop, we go down a what some would call a rabbit trail. But I think it's important to preach God's word and to give the sense and to let the Holy Spirit reveal to us individually and corporately Uh, what we need to be taught or what we need to learn or apply in our lives. And so last time I preached, it was requested, can you take some of this stuff about biblical chronology and put it down on paper so that we can have it as a reference form? So I've done that today. I've got a handout that I want to give you guys titled Old Testament Chronology. And it kind of gives some background on how we came to the dates that we came to last time concerning the creation of the earth and dating everything backward from the destruction of the temple to creation and everything forward from creation. So because that was asked, we're going to look at those today and I want to kind of go through that. So the main focus today is going to be on Old Testament chronology or biblical chronology. And I want to kind of review so we have an idea of where we are in world history. But proceeding from Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. We've been camped out here for an entire month. says, and when the thousand years are expired, there's a period of a thousand years that must expire. They have a purpose. They must accomplish a, a purpose. That purpose being, I believe, the Sabbath rest of this earth that creation itself has been groaning for ever since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. God created the world in six days. He labored in six days. He didn't toil. He labored six days. And then on the seventh day, he rested, which was a sign unto man. It was an agreement reflecting on this later between God and the children of Israel. And that pattern was a pattern that man was to follow uh, in peace. 
and in labor. Adam and Eve were meant to labor, not to toil. The Bible shows us in places about the millennial kingdom, there will be labor. We're not just sitting around floating on clouds with harps in the kingdom of God. There's labor. But there's a great difference between labor and toil. Labor is cultivation. Labor is stewardship. But toil ultimately leads to the destruction of the earth. And this creation has been groaning under the toil and sweat of man since the fall of man in the garden. The Bible tells us that a day is in the eyes of the Lord as a thousand years. I believe this reflects upon the creation week and that God has a plan and purpose in history that mirrors what he did when he made the world. That being said, you figure 6,000 years of toil, it makes sense that the seventh millennium would be a time of rest, a time of peace. This is confirmed when Messiah's kingdom is referred to as his rest. It's referred to as the entire earth being at rest. We're told that the present creation longs to be redeemed, that it groans even until now, waiting for its redemption, as does our vile bodies in Christ. We know one day that God's going to destroy this earth and he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. But before that day, the present creation will be redeemed and given rest. This is reflected in God's commands to the children of Israel, what they were to do in the land, to sow and toil and reap the land for six years, and then give it rest. Israel didn't do that from the, from the dedication of the temple and Solomon's day all the way to the carrying away at Babylon. Israel never observed that Sabbath year and never gave the land rest. And therefore, she was taken out of the land for 70 years and the land was given her rest. This creation has had no rest since Adam fell in the garden. Therefore, God himself will rule and reign, and even the creation will rest. The animal kingdom will rest. There'll be great changes when that curse is lifted. So I believe that the millennium fulfills, just as the captivity of Israel fulfilled the Sabbath rest of the land, the millennial kingdom has a purpose one of its primary purposes being giving the earth its Sabbath rest. That's what we've been talking about. That's why I've drawn these conclusions. And it brought us into the topic of biblical chronology. So where we left off last, last time, I was talking about, okay, let's assume the world was created according to the biblical chronology in approximately 4004 B.C. using our modern B.C. A.D. division of time. Well, to Day in 2019, which is about the sunset, is 6,023 years after the biblical date of creation. So if man is to toil and labor for 6,000 years and then God is to intervene in the seventh millennium, we've got a problem. There was no year zero between B.C. and A.D., therefore we're 22 years late. What's going on? Maybe we should just throw this whole theory in the trash can. But the biblical chronology back to creation is back to the creation of Adam. We don't know when Adam fell. We don't know how long he was in the garden. We know that Seth, who replaced Abel, was born when Adam was 130 years old. So Cain and Abel had to be old enough to know right from wrong and to have their own occupation and to, and to have conflict. And Abel had to be killed and, and uh, Eve had to get pregnant again. Uh, so 
that happened when Adam was 130. So the fall probably took place maybe about, a, you know, it could have been as late as 100 years after creation. We simply don't know. Sometime within the first 100 years, Adam sinned. The ground was cursed. And so the earth's toil, the earth's groaning begins with the fall of man. We don't know when that was. So it could have been 100 years. And so we're still close, but we simply don't know. And so the earth has been groaning, and it's time is coming when it will be redeemed. It will be redeemed for a specific amount of time that must be fulfilled. And then we're going to see in the latter half of the verse that Satan is loosed. He's loosed for a season. And that word translated loose there indicates that that too has a specific purpose. That has a very specific and important purpose. Well, why would God allow Satan to be imprisoned and then he's there for a thousand years roughly and then he's let loose for a little time and then God just destroys him? Why would God do all that? God does what he does for his purpose, whether we understand it or not, but his purposes are real and his purposes are legitimate and they're done decent and in order. So our place is not to question God's reasoning, but to seek to understand it and how we can apply it to our lives. When we think about the years that seem to be off between the creation of the world and the present day, you know, approximately 22 years off, and then you got to factor in a seven-year tribulation before that seventh millennium begins, there are some things that are important to consider and they make it such that we don't know, we can't know the day or the hour. Just like the Bible says, we can't know the day or the hour that the Son will come for His bride. We can know the season, however. We can know that it's at the doors and we can be ready and we can live as if it's on the cusp. But again, this brings us to matters of chronology and calendar. And there are a couple other considerations that are important to uh, think about when looking at chronology and when the millennium is due to come and does it fit this 7,000-year paradigm. Um, thinking about the creation week, God worked for six days and then he rested for seven. We have a seven-day week, okay? All cultures have a seven-day week. That's something that's common amongst cultures. We lived in Nepal and worked in Nepal for years. The Nepali calendar is very different from ours. It's far ahead in time. It's, I, don't, I don't know what the year is on, according to the Nepali calendar, but it's much later than 2020. Uh, but they still observe a seven-day week. Okay? Um, their sixth day is typically a rest day. I mean, yeah, it's a Sabbath per se in that culture. That's when people usually don't work. Their Sunday or their Sabbath day or, or their Sunday, our Sunday, is the first day of the week. And so it's like a normal work week over there. Sunday through Friday and then Saturday is the weekend. But that culture has is steeped in Hinduism and man-made mythology. And yet they see and observe a seven-day week. The same can be said of other cultures. 
And when we look at months and we look at days and we look at years, there are astronomical uh, parallels that... What am I trying to say here? There are signs in the heavens or in, 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 uh, in, the, in the heavens or in space that dictate the rotation of the earth, the rotation of the earth around the sun, and therefore 24-hour days, roughly 30-day months, and 365-day years are conceivable uh, to, from observation. So it, it, it uh, is no surprise that cultures around the world would observe years and days and months in a similar fashion. However, there is no astronomical pattern there is no um, sequence in the heavens that would give us a seven-day work week or explain the seven-day week. There's nothing that happens over a period of seven days that we could look up and observe and say, okay, let's date our weeks based upon seven days. There's only one explanation for a seven-day week, and that's the creation account. That's the creation account. And yet all cultures observe a seven-day week. It's no surprise that cultures would observe a 24-hour day roughly because you can observe that the earth rotates in night and day or a 30-day month or even a roughly 360-day year. Lots of cultures have calendars that compensate for the, different, for the days and the seasonal drift. But a seven-day week can't be observed in the heavens it's the handprint of God that reflects the creation week. And it's something that's understood across all cultures. And it's God's evidence of himself. And yet we deny and speak as if the book of Genesis and the stories of creation in the first few chapters are just a fairy tale. And yet the handprint thereof is painted on men and it's men's cultures going back as far as we can tell. The Romans had a seven-day week long before Christianity had any influence on Roman civilization, the Romans had a seven-day week. In fact, our weekdays are derived from the Roman calendar that predated Christian political influence on the empire. So this picture of the creation week is evident. It's a handprint of God that reflects itself in man-made calendars. And therefore, in a sense, it's meant to reflect and it's meant to foreshadow, I believe, something else, which is the rest that awaits the people of God. Talked about there in Hebrews. But anyway, I'm kind of getting off on a tangent. A couple of considerations when we make our, try to make our calculations here is, first of all, the Jewish calendar... The Jewish calendar is not a solar calendar, and it's not a, it's not a solar calendar like ours, and it's not a lunar calendar like the Nepali calendar or the calendars observed in the Islamic world. It's what we call a lunisolar calendar. It's based upon both the sun and the moon. It's a pretty unique calendar. We've talked about it before. It's based upon three independent phenomena. Number one, the rotation of its earth on it, the earth on its axis. That's what makes a day. The earth rotates on its axis. Sun comes up, sun goes down. Sun rises the next morning, sun goes down. That is what makes a day. 
That calendar is also based upon the rotation of the moon around the earth. That's what dictates a month. The moon's rotation around the earth. Roughly 29.5 days is how long it takes the moon to rotate the earth. And then the third phenomenon is the rotation of the earth around the sun, the basis for the Jewish year. So the rotation of the earth on its axis is the basis for the day. The moon around the earth is the basis for the month. And the earth around the sun is the basis for the year. The earth rotates around the sun approximately 365.25 days. But it's, it's, not, it's not that rounded off. And therefore, we've talked about how you have seasonal drifts and why we went from the Julian calendar, the Gregorian calendar. And I've done all that in the past. But in the Jewish calendar, the month is going to be either 29 or 30 days. And the year is either going to be 12 or 13 months. Because again, it's based upon both the moon and the, the sun. So, the way the Jewish calendar in terms of the months compensates for seasonal drift is what they call a pregnant year. There's a pregnant year when an extra month is added. There's a month in the Jewish calendar called Adar. In a pregnant year, the month Adar 1 is added before Adar 2. Adar 2 is the normal month of Adar. In a pregnant year, they add an extra month before Adar, and you have Adar 1 and Adar 2. And these pregnant years take place on a 19-year cycle. And you're thinking, what is this all about? The 3rd, the 6th, the 8th, the 11th, the 14th, the 17th, and the 19th, all are pregnant years. You think, that's random, that's no pattern. What, what, what did you just say that makes no sense? It's really quite easy because it reflects, and I see this because I grew up taking piano lessons, it reflects the keys on a piano. On a piano, you have two whole steps and then a half step, and then you have three whole steps and a half step, right? When you look at the white and the black keys. Well, that's the way it is, a step in a Jewish calendar is two regular years followed by a pregnant year. A half step would be a regular year and a pregnant year. So two and one is a whole step. One and one is a half step. So what you have on their 19-year cycle is two whole steps, two regular, a pregnant, two regular and a pregnant. Then you have a half step, a regular and a pregnant. Then you have three whole steps, two regular, pregnant, two regular, pregnant, two regular, pregnant. And then you have a half step, a regular and a pregnant. It's a 19-year cycle that basically is pictured for you on the keyboard of a piano. And so that's a Jewish calendar that uh, compensates for seasonal, seasonal drift and is based upon the sun and the moon, not just the, sun, not just the sun or just the moon. It's an interesting calendar. So the Jewish calendar is a little different than ours. That's something we have to keep in consideration with biblical chronology. The civil year would begin in the fall, in the seventh month, the month of Tishri. The religious year would begin in the month of Nisan, the first month, which is the, uh, the month that Israel came out of the land of Egypt. So those are things to consider, and they're not always easy to understand or pinpoint in the Bible. And then the second thing is, according to the Jews, any portion of a year would equal a year. So if a king 
reigned on a throne for three years and six months, then he would, it would be considered that he had a four-year reign. So any portion of a year is considered a year. So with those things in mind, you can understand why there may be a little discrepancy between our modern calendar and a biblical chronology. Not giant discrepancies. You know, we're going to see that we're only talking about decades here in terms of historical minds that dated the creation of the earth. We're not talking about centuries. Uh, the Jewish calendar today is a rabbinic calendar. They date from the creation of the world. So Jewish society or the Orthodox use a calendar that dates from what's called Anno Mundi, the creation of the world. So on September 29th, 2019, the year 5,779 ended. So right now, the rabbinic calendar is 5,780 years from the creation of the world. Now, the biblical chronology we looked at last time shows that we're roughly 6,022 years. So you have a difference here of about 243 years between the biblical chronology based upon biblical text and the rabbinic calendar. That's really not a whole lot of time. The rabbinic calendar is based upon something established by a great famous rabbi in Jewish history. They call him Maimonides or the Ramban. He was a medieval Jewish scholar in the Middle Ages, and a lot of the rabbinic tradition looks to him as an authority in all sorts of matters. Um, and uh, a lot of times he's spoken about as the Messiah. I don't understand that because he died a whole long time ago, and he's been dead for a long time, just like any other man. But some refer to him as the Messiah or the authority. What does the Rambam say? I saw this interesting video where these Jewish believers were going out on the streets in Israel and they were describing a certain type of person. What They were asking people, I'm going to describe a person to you and I want you to tell me what you think about this type of person. And so they would describe things that Jesus said in his ministry and things that he did. Most of these people had never seen a New Testament. They wouldn't be familiar with it. And so he would describe, you know, what would you think of a person who said these things and who rebuked the religious leaders and who did this, this, and this? And their answers were like, or they would ask, who do you think, that, who is this talking about? And a lot of times their responses were, I, wow, this is a great individual. This is like the ultimate Jew. This is like Jewish, this is like Judaism fulfilled. Well, do you know who this person is? This is an actual real historic person. And most of the time there was just a look of, uh, of dumbfounding, like, I, I don't know, maybe, it, it, it must be the Rambam. It must be Maimonides. It must be this guy. They kept going back to this guy. And then when they found out it was Jesus that was being talked about, there was shock. There were two Orthodox guys in these interviews who were very into it, like, oh, you know, this is the ultimate, this must be the Messiah, whatever. And then when they were, it was revealed that it was Jesus, the one guy with the beard just threw his hands up in the air and walked off. You know, five, ten seconds earlier, he said, this is like the ultimate Jew. This is who we all should model. And then when he found out it was Jesus, he just threw his hands up and walked off. Typical veil over the eyes. 
But a lot of these, a, a lot of the respondents would speak about this Rambam. I don't know why he's so esteemed. He wrote some commentary on the Old Testament scriptures, but he dates the world from uh, in such a way that we're at 5,780 years from creation. There are some other famous individuals in church history that dated the creation. Martin Luther was one of them. He argued that the world was created in 3,960 B.C. So that's about a 44-year difference from what we've traced. Philip Melanchthon, who was a student of Martin Luther and helped carry Lutheran theology into the uh, Reformation, he dated the world from 3963 B.C. We're talking about 41 years difference. In the Middle Ages in England, about 700 A.D., was a famous monk by the name of Venerable Bede. He's wrote, he did an English Bible translation, a very early English Bible translation that reflected the text tradition of what we have in the King James. He's well known for popularizing the dating system that we understand, B.C. and A.D. Anu Domini doesn't mean after death. It means the year of our Lord, dating from the birth of Christ. He didn't uh, start using that terminology. That came from sometime earlier, but his writings employed it in such a way that it became popular in the English world, and we use it today. Uh, he dated the world from 3952 B.C., so we're about 52 years difference from the way we did it. And then you had Archbishop Usher, the uh, Bishop of Canterbury there in England, who years later, using biblical data and using um, those bridges between secular and biblical history we've talked about to date the earth to 4004 B.C. So even with Luther, Melanchthon, the Bede, and Usher, we're not talking about large periods of time, discrepancy. Decades, decades are in play. Um, with the Jewish Rambam, we're looking at a couple hundred years, but we're not talking about long periods of time. We can say that it's close. We can say that the earth's redemption is at the doors. In Matthew chapter 24... And again, this is another Jesus' Olivet Discourse that we've, I've preached through in this series. Jesus says in verses 32 and following, Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves you know that summer is nigh. When the fig tree starts sprouting leaves, you know that the summer is coming. You know the season. So likewise ye, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation, talking about the Jews, shall not pass, Till all these things be fulfilled. In other words, the race of Israel will not pass until everything is fulfilled in the law, including Israel keeping the law as she should. 
That's another thing that's going to happen in the millennium. That's why we have a temple and sacrifices. I'll talk about that later. Then he goes on to say, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not. But of that day and the hour knoweth no man, know not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So Jesus is saying, you can't know the day or the hour, but you can know the season. You can be ready. And all his works will be, all his words will be fulfilled. All of God's words and works will be fulfilled. And so there's that, this sense of fulfillment that I believe brings the present creation full circle. And I believe the seventh millennium of human history, according to God's calendar, knowing that our calendar can be off, is going to fulfill the earth's Sabbath rest. It's working on a cycle that mirrors God's creation. Wait, this is what I believe, and I believe the scriptures give us clues to that. The latter half of the verse, and I want to just cover this real quick before we get into chronology for a few minutes. When the thousand years are expired, chapter 20, verse 7 of Revelation, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. Okay? He doesn't break out. This is not a prison escape. He's set free. He's loosed. Remember, he's cast into the bottomless pit. He's cast into that abyss from which those demon creatures came out during the tribulation. He's cast into that great gulf that separated the rich man in hell from Lazarus and Abraham's bosom in the story Jesus told. Of course, Abraham's bosom or paradise is empty now. Those saints have been ushered into the presence of God. But Satan is cast into that abyss and he's put in there, he's locked and he's shut up. And he's not allowed to deceive the nation during the time of the earth's millennium. But then after the millennium is fulfilled, he's set free. He's loosed out of his prison. This verb here in the Greek is the very first verb you learn when you study biblical Greek. It's what's called a model verb, luo, to loose. That means it works according to a predictable pattern. The same thing happens in Spanish. When you learn Spanish... You learn the first verb you learn is hablar, which is to speak. Then you learn the, an ER verb, comer, to eat. And then you, then you learn an IR verb. You know, there's so, several that are very consistent, like escribir, to write. And these verbs have predictable patterns. So luo is that, I remember, luo, lues, lue, luomen, lucin, luomen. I don't use Greek. I just remember those conjugation tables over and over in Greek class in college. And uh, that was the first verb we learned, to loose, to set something free. So this, this word here indicates that Satan's loosing has a specific purpose. The thousand years had a purpose to demonstrate something or to fulfill something. Satan's loosing has a purpose to fulfill something. It brings to mind a very politically incorrect truth that the psalmist declares in Psalm 39. This is very politically incorrect, and it goes against modern American culture. It goes against the American dream. It goes against the philosophies of the schoolroom. It goes against the philosophy of our government. 
It goes against the philosophies of amillennialism and postmillennialism. It's a very politically incorrect, inconvenient truth. David writes in Psalm 39, verse 5, Verily every man at his best state is altogether vanity. In other words, the best that man or anything man-made can be is vanity. Solomon spoke in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. The very best we can be left to ourselves is vanity. And the second law of thermodynamics in human society or in human science confirms this. We can build the biggest, the prettiest, the cleanest, the most architecturally complex house known to man, bright and brand new, Build it, complete it, lock the door and walk away. Never even touch it or live in it. And what happens? Given enough time, it's dilapidated. It's overgrown. I always remember this house. We used to go hang out at a friend's house off of Buffalo Shoals Road years ago. And as you would drive down a dirt road and look over to the right, there was woods. And back in those woods was an old house. I don't know how long it had been sitting there. But the kudzu had literally covered it. So the entire house was covered with kudzu. And it was just kudzu in the shape of a house that was falling down. The creation was literally eating up this edifice that man had created. You know, a trail. There, was, there used to be a trail in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park that went to the top of Mount Guyot, which is, I believe, the third highest mountain uh, in the Appalachians. And the National Park Service, just a few decades ago, decommissioned that trail. They stopped maintaining it. And when we went out there a few years ago to climb it, me and a friend, there was no evidence whatsoever that a trail had ever been there. No evidence at all. In fact, we had to crawl on our hands and knees. I remember slipping and falling and busting my cell phone. It was in my back pocket. Briars, trees this close together. There was no evidence of a trail. Creation had literally eaten up what man had put there. So we see this observed. It's evident in every aspect of our lives, and yet we ignore it and act as if it's not true. Every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Satan's loosing is going to prove this. It's going to prove that just like in every other period of history, man, when left to himself, will fail. He will rebel against God and he will fail. We look back at God's dealing with humankind over human history. When God put Adam and Eve in a garden, he dealt with them according to their innocence. They, innocence. they were innocent. And what happened? They rebelled against him. They failed. After Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden... From Adam down to Noah, God dealt with men on the earth according to their conscience. His law was written on their hearts. They knew what was right and wrong. Cain and Abel knew what was right and wrong, what God required for sacrifice, and what did Cain do? He rebelled. I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to worship God my way, the father of all man-made religion. God dealt with men according to their conscience. And what happened? They failed. They rebelled. Evil and wickedness dominated and God flooded the planet and destroyed it. With Noah, God gave human government. God told Noah how, he was, how men were to be governed. 
Capital punishment was a big part of that. When men shed men's blood in an act of murder, then their blood is to be shed. And that responsibility was put in the hands of human government. That is righteous. Capital punishment is righteous. It restrains evil. And yet we think we're somehow above all that antiquated stuff and we're better than that. What did man do? He failed. Man quickly got away from God after the flood. God rose up Abraham. God dealt with man according to promises made to Abraham. And yet man failed. The law was given at Mount Sinai and it was given so that Israel would teach the nations. The law that reflected what was already on the conscience of men. Under God's law, men failed. Israel didn't keep it. And she certainly wasn't a light to the nations that she should have been. Then God stepped into human space in the fullness of time. Uh, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law. He came. He was crucified. He was buried. He rose from the dead as the prophets had said. God accepted His sacrifice and thereby God has dealt with mankind according to His grace. His grace in some form shines upon all men. His grace falls upon the just and the unjust. God hasn't destroyed the world as he did under Noah. The gospel has gone into all the world. And yet what? Man rebels. Even within the church today. A spirit of rebellion. A spirit of vanity. All of a sudden, our eyes have been opened because a few kids of a few Christian parents went out and decided one day they were gay. And so now all of a sudden, we've always been wrong. God really has no problem with homosexuality. These scriptures actually mean something different now. That's that vanity of man, even in the church. That's the spitting in God's face in response to His grace. And then comes the kingdom. So man, whether he's in a state of innocence without sin in the Garden of Eden, or whether he lives and subsists under the rule of God in the flesh, to be seen, God Himself ruling here on earth, in righteousness, no respect of persons, all power and authority, under the rule of Christ, what does man do? Whether he's in the garden or in the kingdom, he rebels. He rebels against God. Man left to himself will fail. And God's going to demonstrate this. He's demonstrated it throughout history, and He's going to demonstrate it one final time. At the end of the millennium, where there are consequences for not following the law, nations that refuse to come up to Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles, there will be drought and plague that fall upon them. There will be righteous judgment, no respect of persons. Christ will rule, and Israel will be chief of the nations. In this, even in this, man will fail. And all it takes is Satan, who's not been able to deceive the nations for a thousand years, to be loosed for a little season. He doesn't have to go out and work very hard on deceiving people. He finds people ripe for deception. He's going to find basic rebellion simmering in human nature. At the end of the millennium, just like it was in the heart of Eve and of Adam. Man, if left to himself, will fail. And that's what this loosing is going to demonstrate. Man's vanity, man's failure, 
has echoed from the garden and will to the end of time in this present creation that we need a Savior. We need a Messiah. I want to look at Old Testament chronology for a bit. So I'm going to have uh, my dad hand out those uh, handouts for you. This is a reference And we'll just use it as a bit of review. Old Testament chronology can be trusted. And I believe it demonstrates one of many areas that we can trust the Word of God. The Word of God is not just more true in the red letters than the rest of the Bible. It's not more true in the law or the prophets than it is in the rest. Everything is important. And it's there for a reason. And I believe Old Testament chronology or Bible chronology, if you want to expand it to the New Testament, I believe it's trustworthy, it's accurate, it's verifiable. And I believe it's just as powerful to work on the heart of man as John 3.16. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's powerful. It can affect change in man's heart. But I can open up to 1 Chronicles, the sons of Judah, Perez, Hezron, and Carmi, and Hur, and Shobal, and Rehahiah, the son of Shobal, begat Jahath, and so forth and so on. That's got just as much power. Because the Word of God is living and breathing. That's got just as much power to change a man's heart and to prick his spirit as John 3.16. I believe that. I believe that because Jesus Christ assigned importance to every jot and tittle of the law. Jesus Christ said that every word would be fulfilled. So these things are powerful and they can strengthen our faith. And I just want, it was requested that I put something down to help you better understand the chronology we did a couple weeks ago dating back to the earth's creation. Why is it that we can say the Bible uh, gives us a creation date of roughly 4,000, that translates into 4004 B.C.? So there are some background issues to understand that are actually quite interesting and they clear up a lot of what have been called contradictions in the scriptures and they reflect upon the vanity of man and why men did and chose to do what they did and we can learn from these things so i just thought i would try to go over some of this today and i would just use it as a reference it might be good for kids for their history class you might could use it in homeschooling Uh, it might be confusing But it doesn't need to be. Um, When we look at Old Testament chronology and we, 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 we look at dating things in the Scripture or translating the historic events of the Scripture to our modern day dating system, it starts with what I call verifiable astral phenomena. There were things that can be calculated mathematically. Astral phenomena that were observed in the heavens and written about in historical documents that we can go back through mathematics and date. Astronomical phenomena in the heavens can be dated mathematically. When we look at lunar eclipses and alignments of the planets, those things can be calculated and pinpointed 
not only forward in time, but backward in time. You often hear about an eclipse or a certain arrangement in the stars at night. We're not going to see this again for a certain number of years. Mathematics, which is proof that there is such a thing as absolute truth, 2 plus 2 is always 4, regardless of what the modern stupid American college student thinks. There is absolute truth. Mathematics is the proof, and we can demonstrate it in predicting certain patterns in the heavens. But there was a lunar eclipse observed in history and written about, and it was said that it was seen in the fifth year of a Babylonian king named Nabopolassar. Nabopolassar's father was the father of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? We can date this lunar eclipse to April 15th, 621 B.C. So we know that 621 B.C. was the fifth year of Nabopolassar according to extra-biblical historical documentation. Nabopolassar, according to that same documentation, reigned for 21 years. When he died, his son Nebuchadnezzar came through the throne. So if his fifth year was in 621 B.C., according to this lunar eclipse, which math, working backwards, shows to be so, then we know that Nebuchadnezzar came to the throne of Babylon in 605 B.C. That's something we can date based upon astral phenomena. Okay? There's another recording. The Babylonians recorded things they saw in the heavens. The wise men from the east, probably from Babylon, saw a star and they recorded things about it. They watched the heavens. Nebuchadnezzar's 37th year is fixed at 568-567 B.C. by an astronomical diary that was kept. Extant is the opposite of ex extinct. Something that's extinct has passed away. We can't uh, uh, observe it. It's gone. Something that's extant has survived. There are roughly 5,000 extant Greek manuscript or manuscript portions of the New Testament. That means they still survive. But there's an extant astronomical diary that records observations of the moon and the five planets and their alignment. And we can verify these things mathematically. Twice this tablet affirms that these observations were made in the 37th year of Nebuchadnezzar. And the combination or the alignments that are noted, those positions are not duplicated before or after the date for several thousand years. So it could only have been this particular time because these alignments only happen rarely. These alignments were said or noted in the 37th year of Nebuchadnezzar, and they confirm again 605 B.C. as the year he came to the throne. So this 605 B.C. is a bridge between secular history and biblical history that is proven by the movement of bodies in the heavens. It can be calculated and verified through mathematics. So, this verifiable astral phenomena leads us to what I talked about a few weeks ago. Three main bridges 
between verifiable biblical and secular history. Remember the three dates, 586 B.C., the destruction of the temple, 605 B.C., which was the fourth year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, also the same year as the Battle of Carchemish, confirms what the astral data has said, and then A.D. 26, the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, when Jesus was about 30 years old. We can bridge between secular history and biblical history at these three places. I'm not going to read all of that. You can read over it. These three bridges allow us to enter into the biblical chronology and date backwards based upon biblical dates, what the scriptures say, and then to verify it based upon astral phenomena and looking forward in biblical history into the New Testament. So these bridges allow us to date things. I want to move on, though, because there's some other interesting considerations that really clear up a lot of the discrepancies people claim to find in the records of the Kings and Chronicles. Regal dating methods. A regal dating method is how a king or how a dynasty calculated its reigns. And there were two major types of dating methods in ancient history. The accession year dating or non-accession year dating. If a king reckoned the years of his reign from the new year after his accession to the throne, the calendar year in which he ascended to the throne would be called his accession year. And his first official year would not begin until New Year's Day after he came to the throne. So we see this similarly with our presidents. A U.S. president is elected in November, November 20th. And then his inauguration period, where he is the president-elect, is from November of one year until January, what is it, January 6th? I don't know what the date is, inauguration day, I don't know. The 20th, I'm sorry. January 20th, he's the president-elect. His presidency doesn't begin until after the new year following his election. So Donald Trump was, was considered the president-elect at the end of 2016. 2016 is a year that we attribute to President Obama. So this would be called the accession year method of dating. That's how we do with our president. So if a king died in, say, October of 1000 B.C. and his son came to the throne for three months, those three months would not be considered an official year of his reign. That's his accession year. His reign wouldn't start counting until after the new year. That's accession year dating. There was another method of dating used... Um, uh, if a king reckoned the year in which he ascended to the throne, his first official year, this was known as non-accession year dating or anti-dating. In other words, that king would count October, November, and December of 1000 B.C. as his first year. And so what you have happening is the last year of a father's reign 
and the first year of a son's reign are actually the same year. They're two official years, but they're only one calendar year. So in accession year dating, you have the accession year. In non-accession year dating, that would be your first year. And then your first year in accession year would be your second year in non-accession. Your second year in accession would be your third year in non-accession. So these are the different ways of dating. We had accession year and non-accession year. These are what were used in ancient times. According to both of these methods of dating, any portion of a year would count as a year. And this is where it gets interesting. Under normal circumstances, when we look at the history of Israel, the kings of Judah did things like we do it here in America with our presidents. A reign, an official year, didn't begin until after the new year following the death of the father. For example, we can see this in Scripture. The Scripture shows us these things to be true. King Abijah of Judah, who I referred to, remember the one that captured Bethel after that war with Jeroboam and he had, he had rebuked the king for why you guys have these calves and all of this. We follow God and then he captures Bethel and doesn't get rid of that calf. You know, a typical example of a politician who says one thing and then does another. But this is who we're talking about. It says that Abijah of Judah came to the throne in the 18th year of Jeroboam of Israel. So the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel started in the same year. Rehoboam's first year and Jeroboam's first year were, were together. The kingdom divided. Abijam came to the throne in the 18th year of Jeroboam of Israel, and it is said that he reigned three years. But then we learn that Asa, his, throne, his son, came to the throne in the 20th year of Jeroboam. And it is said that he reigned 41 years. So the 20th year of Jeroboam was the last year of Abijah's three-year reign and Asa's accession year. So the only way Abijah could have reigned for three years is if the 20th year of Jeroboam was his third year. And then Asa, that for him, that was his accession year. The following calendar year would be the first official year. So in other words, the third year of Abijah was the accession year of Asa. The kings of Judah used this method, a reasonable method. The kings of Israel, on the other hand, were always motivated going back to the days of Jeroboam to do things differently, to establish themselves as the authority. What did Jeroboam do? He set up golden calves to keep the people from going down and worshiping at the temple. He devised a calendar and feasts and a priesthood after his own heart. So while Judah was observing the biblical feast in the seventh month, Jeroboam just made up his own feast on the 15th day of the eighth month. And so Judah or Israel, motivated by a desire to do things differently from the kings of Judah and also to pad their resumes across multiple dynasties, they preferred this method, where the last year of one king would also be considered the first year of another king. Now, you've got to remember in Judah, you had one dynasty, the, the line of David. The, the house of Ahab almost train wrecked that, but God preserved the messianic line. 
in Israel, you had multiple dynasties. You had the dynasty of Jeroboam, the dynasty of Baasha, the dynasty of Ahab, the dynasty of, of uh, Jehu. And then you had all kinds of different guys coming in there at the end. And so you had multiple dynasties that were trying to establish themselves and do what? Pad their resumes. So naturally, when a dynasty changed hand, the new king would just act, cancel the previous king as if he was, it didn't even matter. And he would assume his first year, what he could come to the throne at the end of December if they weren't dating according to our calendar, but just for an analogy, he could come to the throne December 28th and he'd still reign one year. It'd be considered a year. So we see this with the kings of Israel. In other words, the last official year of one monarch would also be counted as the first year of his successor. An example of this, we are told that Baasha began to reign over Israel in the third year of Asa of Judah and that he reigned 24 years. Later, it is said that the Elah, the son of Baasha, began to reign in the 26th year of Asa of Judah, which was the same as Baasha's 24th year, and that he reigned two years. Elah was then assassinated in the 27th year of Asa the very next year. Therefore, it's clear, based on what the scriptures say, that the last year of Baasha, his 24th, was also considered the first year of Elah. So here we see the kings of Israel using the non-accession year dating. Now this padding the resume method creeps into the kings of Judah. And when you acknowledge this, the chronology works out perfectly. There was an alliance made between the house of Jehoshaphat and the house of Ahab. Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoshaphat, who was a righteous king, his son was not married the daughter of Queen Ahab, uh, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And so when you go and look at the accounts there between the kings and the chronicles, what you see is this idea that if we just go along to get along, maybe we can make the kingdom come back together, even though it wasn't God's timing for that. King Jehoshaphat and his reign and his buddying up with the wicked like the church did today is a lesson for us. He was rebuked for that. Those were his follies. The Bible commands us to be at peace with the wicked, not to try to make peace with the wicked. Big difference. Paul said, as much as is within you, be at peace with all men. I desire to be at peace here in America with the liberals and the Democrats and the homos and the dykes and the trannies. I want to be at peace. I'm not a man of war. But I'm not making peace with the wicked. That means I would compromise what I know to be true. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. A peacemaker makes peace for the righteous. He doesn't make peace with the wicked. Sometimes to be a peacemaker means to pick up your musket and go to war. To make peace for the righteous. That's what my ancestors did here in North Carolina in 1861. They were peacemakers. In order to make peace for the righteous amongst whom they lived, they had to take up their muskets and defend their land. A peacemaker makes peace or labors to make peace amongst or for the righteous. We are to be peacemakers within the body of Christ. We are to be peacemakers amongst those whose hearts outside the church are open to the truth. 
We are to be peacemakers in the sense that we can preserve a culture whereby the gospel can be freely disseminated so men's hearts will change. But to be a peacemaker in the sense that Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, is not to make peace with the righteous. Because King Jehoshaphat was rebuked for that. We're called to be at peace. And sometimes to be at peace is quite different than making peace. No making peace with the wicked. We're not called to do that. We're called to do what we have to do to make peace. We're blessed if we make peace for the righteous. But we're to be at peace as much as life within us, as much as is possible. But the king Jehoshaphat was rebuked. We see that his son married the daughter of Ahab, king of Israel. And so what the righteous king hoped would pull Israel back into doing things the right way actually had the reverse effect. Ahab and his house had influence on the, king of Ju- the kingdom of Judah. And therefore you see the bloodline of Ahab enter into the messianic bloodline. And therefore those kings who were more the blood of Ahab than they were the blood of David aren't listed in Matthew's genealogy. Matthew knew exactly what he was doing. But when all this was going on, the influence of Ahab brought the non-AC method of dating into the kings of Judah. So what you had here is as long as Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab, held influence in the land, they used the non-AC method obviously to pad their resumes and to give the house of Ahab authority in the kingdom of Judah. Therefore, we see that the last year of Jehoram of Judah is also considered the first year of Ahaziah. And the last year of Ahaziah is also considered the first year of Queen Athaliah's reign over the land. When she was finally deposed and things returned to normal in Judah, remember the king Joash was hidden in the temple by the priest and then... Then finally he made his appearance and and the throne was taken back. Things were turned normal and Judah went back to this method of dating. Therefore, when you calculate the reigns of Judah, three official years recorded by the house of Ahab who ruled in Judah is only one actual year. So you have to factor that in. Now... You might think, well, you're saying all these things and it makes sense or whatever. Maybe it's totally above my head. I don't know. But what's the proof? The proof is right in the Scriptures. When, we, when these facts are understood, apparent discrepancies in the chronologies of the kings completely evaporate. We know that when the kingdom was divided, the reigns of Rehoboam of Judah and Jeroboam of Israel coincided We know that. It happened in the same year. The accession year of one was the same as the other. Moreover, we are told that the 18th year of Jehoshaphat of Judah was both the year that Ahaziah of Israel died and the year that Jehoram began to reign. We know this. It's right there in the Scriptures. Now, notice how the identical period of time is represented in the Scriptures. If we look at the kings of Judah and we consider the AC method of dating, we have Rehoboam 17 years, Abijah 3 years, Asa 41 years, and then we're told in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, 
Ahaziah died. So we'll take 18 years. Now, Jehoshaphat reigned for 25 years, I believe, or it was 24. But we have a period of 79 years. We're told that Ahaziah died in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat. So looking at the reigns of the king of Judah, that gives us 79 official years. But if we go to the kings of Israel and how their reigns are calculated, Jeroboam 22, Nadab 2, Baasha 24, Elah 2, Omri 12, Ahab 22, Ahaziah 2. That gives us 86 years. So we have 86 official years. But if we consider that they were using this method of dating, Jeroboam's 22 years were actually 22 years. But Nadab's two years were actually only one year on a calendar. Does that make sense? Baasha's 24 were only really 23. And so forth and so on. When we get down to Ahaziah, it is said that he reigned for two years, but he actually reigned for zero calendar years. And here's the way we know that. Jehoshaphat of Judah began to reign in the fourth year of Ahab. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, which would have also been the 21st year of Ahab. Therefore, the very first of Ahaziah's two years was actually a co-regency with his father. Now, we know that Jehoshaphat had a co-regency with his son. And these co-regencies were set up in Israel and Judah at the same time. It was all a part of that man-made plan to try to bring those two kingdoms back together. That's all it was. Jehoshaphat realized he made a big mistake and pulled his son off the throne when all that mess went down. Um, but there was a, a co-regency there. And so Ahaziah's first year was actually the 21st year of Ahab, so it doesn't count. And the second of his two years was the year that Ahab died, the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, so it doesn't count either. The same year that Jehoram came to the throne of Israel, therefore the 22nd year of Ahab equals the second year of Ahaziah equals the first year of Joram. So in terms of actual years, the number zero must be added. So when we look at these two methods of dating and we show and apply it to Judah and Israel, we come up with the exact same number of actual years. Ju Judah was based upon an AC method, 79 years. When you consider and look at the reigns of Israel, factored or calculated based on this, it translates into the same amount of time. So here we have the proof that Judah was using AC dating, Israel was using non-AC dating. So, Rehoboam's first to Jehoshaphat's 18th equals 79 actual years and 79 official years. Jeroboam's first in Israel to Ahaziah's second equals 79 actual years. That's a typo there. But 86 non-AC official years. So, when we understand the different dating methods that were used between the northern and southern kingdom, the so-called contradictions evaporate. And these factors will help us calculate the length of time between the division of the kingdom to the destruction of the temple. And it's not independent. There's a prophecy 
given in Ezekiel chapter 4, we can calculate the years based upon these understandings and then we can compare it to a prophecy that told us the amount of time that would take place when Israel was given a chance to repent. She refused and then God therefore besieged the city and destroyed the temple. Ezekiel speaks of a 390 year period of time. When we go back and calculate the reigns of the king of Judah and factor that the the kings that were influenced by Ahab brought this method of dating into the calculation, we come to the same period of time that Ezekiel gives. So these things are confirmed. The biblical chronology confirms itself, as does prophecy. I'm going to end with this today. I don't want to go too far. But Ezekiel chapter 4 is very interesting. In the first eight verses, God commands the prophet to build a model city of Jerusalem. Now, Ezekiel went into captivity in roughly, uh, I think it was 597 B.C. He went into captivity with King Jehoiachin, okay? And he speaks of his captivity from that period. He was about 30 years old. And so those captives were in the land of Babylon for several years before the temple was actually destroyed. So the city still stood. Zedekiah was the king. And the temple still stood. And there was this thought amongst the captives that somehow this is all going to work out. The temple's not going to be destroyed and we're going to get to go home. The same naivete that was prevalent amongst the Jews in 1930s Europe. When all the signs were there that things weren't going to go so well. Ah, and it was just, we're just going to believe the best. It's all going to work out. And then they're thrown into the ovens. Same idea going on with the captives there with Ezekiel. Oh, this is all going to work out. No thoughts of repentance. It's all going to work out. And Ezekiel is given a prophecy. No, it's not. It's not going to work out. Your temple is going to be destroyed. And you're going to be stuck here for a while. And then God gives Ezekiel a vision of a future millennial temple to encourage the people. In other words, this stuff's going to happen. You're going to pay for it because you've sinned against me. You need to repent. But I'm still going to keep my promises. So I'm going to give you a distant vision of something that I'm going to do. So about God tells Ezekiel to build a model city, to build a Lego city per se. They didn't have Legos back then. But he built a model of the city of Jerusalem. And he was to build a model that showed it being besieged by an army, battering rams and towers and all those things. He built a model city in the sight of the people there uh, in, in the land of Babylon. And then he is told to lay upon his left side for 390 days before that model siege as a testimony to a 390-year period of Israel's iniquity that was about to come to an end. Then he is to lie upon his right side for 40 days before that model siege as a testimony to a 40-year period of Judah's iniquity. He, God says, I have appointed thee each day for a year. So a day stood for a year. So a 390-year period followed by a siege and destruction of Jerusalem is prophesied upon Israel. And sometime thereafter, a 40-year period followed by a siege and destruction of Jerusalem is prophesied upon Judah. 
Now, about six years after this prophecy declared to those taken captive with Ezekiel in 597 B.C., and who still thought things would work out and that they could return home, Jerusalem was besieged by the Babylonians, Babylonians, and the city and the temple were destroyed, 586 B.C. Working backwards from 586 B.C., the 390th year brings us to the division of the kingdom after the death of Solomon in 975 B.C. What happened in 975 B.C. within a few months after the kingdom was divided? Israel was made to sin by the iniquity of Jeroboam. The calves were erected. Israel fell into iniquity that she never turned away from. And that iniquity brought in, that spirit of Cain brought in by Jeroboam infected Israel and Judah. And so from the time the kingdom divided until the destruction of the temple was 390 years. And we're going to see that calculating the reigns of the kings gives us that 390. This is what Ezekiel was talking about. And just a few years after this prophecy, it came to pass. Yeah, he was taken captive in 597 B.C. It was in the fifth year of his captivity that these prophecies came. So about 592 B.C., six years before the temple was destroyed, when the people thought it was going to all work out, God said, no, you're going to sin against me for 390 years. Your iniquity is going to come to a full, and then I'm going to besiege and destroy Jerusalem. Now, We can confirm this by calculating the reigns of the kings of Judah from the first year of Rehoboam to the 11th year of Zedekiah. Now, if we calculate all those years you see listed here as given in the scriptures, we come to a total of 394 years, 6 months, and 10 days. You're like, well, wait a minute. That's not 390. Well, yes, it is because we have to factor in what happened when the house of Ahab had control over the land. So I'm going to stop there today. I'll go over the rest of it. Look over this next week. You might find it interesting. I talk a little bit about uh, Christ and the fulfillment of that 40-year period of iniquity. And then at the end, I sum up for you how we come to the conclusion of 4004 B.C. uh, from 586 B.C. moving backwards. So... I don't know if this stuff interests you or not. I enjoy history and chronology. And I've found in studying the biblical chronology that we can trust the Bible. It verifies itself. It's a historical document. The places that it talks about are actually there today. You can go there. It's not such with the Book of Mormon. I mean, all these battles, some battle involving hundreds of thousands of people supposedly took place near Palmyra, New York. I don't know what the dates are, and yet there's never been any archaeological finds that even demonstrate that that ever happened. People are finding things in Israel all the time. Inscriptions with Pontius Pilate's name on it. Coins with the names of these kings talked about. All the time this stuff is being discovered. The Bible is history, it's chronology, and it's prophecy. And remember, prophecy is just history written before time. 
And that's what distinguishes God from the gods of men. And that's, that fact is what God challenges man with. Who can tell the end from the beginning? God can. He can tell the end, the millennial reign of Christ, from the beginning, from before man ever fell or there was ever a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. God knew the end from the beginning. And that end is the millennial reign of Christ. That end is the final testing of man in which man fails. And that end is a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And the scarlet thread or the theme that runs throughout is Messiah and our need for Him. So we can say that we finished Revelation chapter 20 verse 7. But I don't want to go into verse 8 until we talk about some traits of the millennium. Some things we can look forward to uh, that are specifically described in the Old Testament. Things regarding animal life, private property. It's not a communist government. It is a capitalist government whereby men have their own property. But it's righteous capitalism. Not the greed that we see today in America. Feast of Tabernacles is going to be important. There's going to be a temple. The entire geography of the land of Israel will be changed. So I hope you find these things interesting. They're worth talking about because they give us hope now. Just as Ezekiel's visions of the future glory of Israel gave those captive hopes. Captives hope even amidst their rebellion. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that we can trust it, whether it be history Chronology of prophecy, every word, every jot and tittle is true. Thank you for the encouragement we receive when we see these things confirmed in the scriptures and the chronologies. May these things sink down into our hearts and uh, compel us to live for you who already enjoy spiritual Sabbath rest through Christ and look forward to a rest that remains for the people of God under the rule of Christ. So, Lord, as we start a new year and a new decade, help us to keep looking forward and learning by looking back. Not looking back to long for it, but to learn for it so that we can press forward to the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Lord, bless the food in our fellowship. Be with those who are not amongst us. In the name of Jesus the Messiah, I pray. Amen.